0: and welcome back it's alex and gabriel <laughs> and this is oh my god i was like is he gonna say season two and then i saw my life <laughs> <Jesus laughs> you can tell we've been on a break it's fantastic
1: <laughs> and this is episode 17 of life on the brink <laughs> and season two does start now. We're sorry we pushed the back. Hey. We're sorry we pushed back the start episode by a week on you. It's for a good cause. It was for a great cause because you got a job. <laughs> I did, I did. It's very exciting. And now we've got a new episode. Oh, I stole your line. <laughs> and now we've got a brand new episode truffle eating marsupials hey yep they're called northern batongs, and they're absolutely adorable they look kind of like if you ask someone to create a gray rat that's a little more kangaroo-y which is probably why a lot of people call them kangaroo rats but they're not actually rats they're marsupials from northeastern queensland well
0: actually just from a few small pockets in northeastern queensland these days <laughs>
1: Their species name, their scientific name is Betongia tropica. What does it mean?
0: Well, you're going to hate me again because I always seem to get the really easy (laughs) ones. I literally (laughs) just typed meaning into Google and Google spat out the answer with a pretty reputable source. (laughs) So according to, well, this is actually funny. According to the Queensland Department of Environment Science, which is where I actually work. (laughs) Betong is actually the Aboriginal word, w- Aboriginal word for small wallaby, which is cool because I think that's one of the first Indigenous ones we've had so far, right? I think it might be. It took a while. Yeah, it took us a while. There you go. And tropica, I mean, you were pretty right on the money. It
1: it just means occurs in the tropics. So small wallaby in the tropics. <laughs> and if you try to picture what a northern betong looks like, don't fret. Our guest on this episode does a beautiful little rundown on how they look in a few minutes. Uh, a few minutes in. We'll get there, just relax and enjoy the ride. I guess is someone who's worked with Northern Batongs for years. And when we called her up, she opened
0: up about her time working with groups like the Worldwide Fund for Nature on the Northern Batong Project, trying to find more populations of these rare truffle lovers. Also, about the sketchy helicopter evacuation she had, trying to find more of them and about some of the camera trapping that I actually helped her out with a little while
1: back. This is episode 17 of Life on the Brink, featuring the northern betong and wildlife ecologist Caitlin Weatherstone. Also, just a heads up, there's two swears a little later on in this episode.
0: Main one's when we ask Caitlin what truffles taste like, so you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs>
2: kid I was always you know bringing home like injured and sick wildlife and just like having all these lizards in my room and birds and I had rainbow lorikeets growing up. I was really into wildlife. Do you guys remember the uh, wildlife fact files that you got at the farm? Mm -hmm. farm, Yep. (laughs) Yep. They were like all the 90s kids had them. They were like these stacks of (laughs) of these wildlife fact files. (laughs) I collected like every single one and I wanted to know about every single animal. I wrote out my own like oh, hand wrote out amazing. every single one and you know there was a real there was a real lack of Australian there was actually a real lack of Australian species. So I was really interested in African wildlife actually were particularly fascinating to me. And biology had always been something I'd been really, really interested in. I never got good marks in it though, ironically. Um I I always did well in like English and drama. Never got good science marks and I was thinking, well I can't be a scientist because I'm not actually getting really good grades, but the thing that got me into really being an ecologist was um, actually a school excursion in grade 11. Our little country school in Grafton in New South Wales took us to Heron Island in the Great Barrier Reef. Heron Island I absolutely fell in love with, and I was obsessed with sea turtles, and so from that point onwards, when I saw the, uh, the beautiful ranger who was working there with really long <laughs> dreadlock hair and wearing bare feet, I was like, that... That is, uh, that's me. That's my future. <laughs> and so, yeah, I then went on to study a Bachelor of Wildlife Science, and I particularly focused on sea turtles and marine ecosystems. And yeah, so sort of did, did a bachelor, and then it, yeah, been obsessed my whole life.
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's it's interesting that you say that you are. Uh the the biology marks aren't good because from the people we've interviewed that seems to be a kind of a common theme where it's initially they're kind of off-put because like oh like I don't have the best marks but it kind of just ends up being if you're passionate enough about it then just go yeah for that's it. right
2: like I always you know I <laughs> always passed and then you know getting into university I went to um University of Queensland Gatton campus had a wildlife science program and, you know, you, if anyone knows UQ Gatton, you kind of need really low marks to actually get into their science programs compared to, say, you know, metropolitan universities. So yeah, we're kind of known as like a bit of the, the you know, the, the naughty uh, brother, all the bad kids get sent out to Gatton. And, yeah, the college life, you know, in between college life and just being like 18 uh, I didn't study very much and so just kind of scraped through, I think, this, this Bachelor of Science. Um, but, yeah, I was particularly obsessed with learning about conservation. It did really poorly, biochemistry, you know, chemistry, those sorts of subjects. It could not give a rat's. But, you know, in wildlife conservation and wildlife management, those sort of subjects, I was getting high distinctions, high distinctions, high distinctions. I'm like, okay, this is, this is where I'm passionate about these subjects and
0: um i need to look further into this area cool it's uh i could definitely relate to you with the chemistry side of things Ugh. i had this one chemistry teacher in high school that just always wanted me to <laughs> do the homework and I, Why? <laughs>
2: i've i um,
0: been waiting for the day that i bump into her again because i got my last chemistry course in uni i got a hd and i can't wait what?
2: to tell us <laughs> <She'll> be <stoked. laughs>
1: i've been holding on to that one one day it'll happen <laughs> So after that, you eventually did a master's, right? And is that, um, is that where your contact with the Northern Vetongs first started?
2: Well, no, it started a bit before that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, when I finished university uh, at UQ, I was, what, 21? I then, um, had just having been to Africa as well on a big uni trip. Oh, cool. Which, yeah, amazing. Oh, my gosh. But it also... You know, I was obsessed with African wildlife and particularly wanted to go there. But then, I really wanted to work with Australian species when I got home. Was really interested in kind of you know how can we educate people about wildlife in this country? And so I ended up going to the zoo industry. So I worked at the Cairns Tropical Zoo. So I moved up to Far North Queensland when I was 21. And I ended up having um, about a year and a half off between my bachelor and my master's. And I just was a full-time zookeeper. Uh, I was managing the um, the night zoo, if anyone's been up there, Cairns Tropical Zoo, which unfortunately um, was sold to developers now, so it doesn't exist. Uh, I had a little night zoo program, which is one of the only ones uh, in the country where they have tourists, mostly international, coming to the zoo at nighttime. We give them a, a dinner and a show experience where we show them nocturnal wildlife and we feed crocodiles and, we, you know, they can get in with the kangaroos and we have damper and billy tea and it's a real Aussie kind of experience. We whip out a cane toad, you know, <laughs> really Aussie, <laughs> tropical experience. And, um, yeah, so I was working with lots of different creatures in there, um, including the northern betong. I went between reptile departments, night zoo, um, birds, and the mammal department. So when I was in the mammal department, we had a, a handful of northern bettongs, maybe it was two pairs. And, yeah, they're, they're pretty cute if you've ever seen one. They're so cute. <laughs> and I didn't even know what, you know, I didn't know how special they were. I didn't really know much about them not being from North Queensland, uh, which is where they are from. You know, having grown up in the northern rivers of New South Wales. And yeah, as so we've got betongs down here, but they're the rufous betong. Uh, they're a lot bigger and kind of a bit more varied with their diet, and they're, um, they're kind of everywhere down here. But the northern betong, I wasn't that familiar with. And then went into my master's program at James Cook University um, there in Cairns. And that's when I focused in, um, I think the the degree was called uh, Tropical Ecology and Conservation. So we learned a bit about how these forests are shaped by, you know, particularly fungi, but then the the creatures that are eating all the fungi, the mycophagous mammals that are kind of digging up all the the fungi and helping the forest health. And um, the betong is a big one for that. So I just started volunteering on anything I could get my hands stuck into. And then I did my um, thesis at the time with like a, a one-year kind of project. So I focused on uh, looking at macropod scat, looking at the abundance of fungi found in seven different macropod scat. So, yeah, then I got to study betons myself, so that was pretty really cool.
0: That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. I uh, I didn't realize that fungi and like... Was on the the menu for so many macabre. <laughs> yeah,
2: I know, right? It's amazing. Um, there's just as an example, um, there's dozens and dozens of species up in the wet tropics, which is where I was studying, that consume uh, fungi, and a lot of them consume truffle fungi, which um, you know everyone's familiar. Truffles are the very very expensive. Dirt tasting, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> mushroomy things that, that um, is well known in Europe. Uh, the black truffle, uh, they're not native to Australia, but in Australia we have thousands and thousands and thousands of our own truffle species. Many, many hundreds of those are in the wet tropics um, and a lot of them are undiscovered. They're completely undescribed. Uh, we don't know anything about them. So um, there's many many creatures that help the fungi to basically be able to spread, and that's those yeah mycophages, which means fungus eating um, marsupials and and macropods. You know bandicoots, rats. A lot of the ratus group uh, are digging up you know fungi as part of my master's project. I also found out that tree kangaroos are going onto the ground, digging for truffle fungi and consuming them because I found their spores in their poo, in their scat. So yeah, I could totally nerd out on truffle fungi all day.
1: <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> they also have this like they have this reputation, right? The northern betongs, I'm assuming some of these other species as well, as being ecosystem engineers, because they throw the fungi around the the ecosystems they're in after eating them and digging them around. Like was that was part of that master's research figuring out like, you know, what they're spreading and where it is?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to find out like how many taxa of, of these truffles that all these macropods were eating. So I was looking at, I looked at seven different macropods in tropical Australia and Papua New Guinea. So uh, my supervisor, bless him, got to, got to go to Papua New Guinea. I unfortunately was not allowed to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a huge trip. They were going with a bunch of other scientists. They had to you know, hike into like 5,000 metres altitude and um, it's all very, you know, up in the highlands and very selective on who they take. So I'm a little master's student. I'm like, take me, take me. I'm like, nope, you get to stay at home. We'll collect some poo for you. And, uh, you know, and then I had to sit in, a, um, yeah, sit in a quarantine lab for a couple of months and, and be quarantined with this, this poo from Papua New Guinea um, and, and look at the, the specimens under the microscope. And then uh, I myself got to collect um, a bunch of uh, samples. So I tried to get as many scat samples as possible from Australian tropical macropods, like the, um, the little musky rat kangaroo, tree kangaroos, um, the red legged paddy melon, and then, of course, the northern betong. And what we found is that all of those macropods, all macropods, are eating fungi including tree kangaroos, which had never been discovered before. And they are complete ecosystem engineers. Um, And in the case of the Northern Betong, a keystone species.
1: Hey, it's us jumping in here for our first first little voiceover of Season 2, Alex. And we're going to get into keystone species. (laughs) What's a keystone species?
0: Keystone species. This is a good one. So keystone species are basically imagine a pillar for the entire ecosystem so if you remove a keystone species from that ecosystem the entire ecosystem's
1: gonna collapse yeah so very important yeah i think it's based off building an arch right out of like stones when you build the arch yeah. up you have to build it up from the size and then you have to put one the keystone in the top and if you take the keystone the top block out the whole thing tumbles down
0: yeah exactly
1: so we talk about this a little bit later in the episode and I
0: swear I don't have a vendetta against koalas, but koalas are like the exact opposite of a keystone species. <laughs> all right, let's get back into this.
2: And, and crucial to the survival of these forests that they, they live in.
0: So basically all macropods are kind of, oh, well, most macropods are just bougie as they've got real high fancy <laughs> they taste. They do, they
2: have really, really expensive <laughs> taste. Um, although you know, I would love to see a commercial market of Australian truffle fungi. I haven't, I haven't found one yet that's actually kind of tasty or similar to the black truffle. I think the black truffle is particularly you know delicious. What is it like? Hundreds of dollars per kilo or something? Something like but, um, that. Yeah, but they, you know, the the purpose of these truffles and why they why they have this pungent smell is they're the only way that they can disperse their spores is being dug up by a mycophagus in this case mammal and they have to smell good so you know if you're a little betong you're you know cruising around in the forest floor you can smell this amazing smell which yet yeah, to a betong that's like tim tams or whatever <laughs> <laughs> they you know then find this truffle it's going to be you know a little bit under the surface of the soil, they don't have the external fruiting bodies like mushrooms where they're, they're advertising, you know, here I am, I'm over here. Um, they have to use their nose to sniff out these truffles. So uh, there's a lot of techniques that the truffles use to kind of do that. It's very clever and they've evolved, you know, over lifetimes. They've evolved together in, you know, Gondwana from when they they were able to help each other to grow huge swathes of rainforest. Yes, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. I mean, like, because I always think about it in the in the context of these animals eat the fungi and it doesn't really have much of an impact on the fungi. It's just an extra food source for the animals. But it's, it's like a, in, this is how they spread is through things like the northern bedong then.
2: Yeah. It's very, very deliberate. They smell a certain way to attract certain, certain like, Predators, so the betongs like a truffle predator, and you know, looking at um, the scat samples of the betongs, depending on what time of year you kind of get them, but about seventy percent of their diet is made up of truffles, and yeah. it's almost hundred percent in the in the wet seasons. So you know, kind of looking at spring, summer, um, autumn, hundred percent truffles, and then in the dry season, in winter, they mostly eat cockatoo grass. So a little grass species that has these nice little kind of rooty rhizomes at the bottom and the betongs can get some sort of fibre and moisture, um, very small nutrient load, but they do get some nutrients out of the base of this cocktail grass. But from what we found, the betong it is the biggest consumer of truffle fungi, a lot of the other macropods don't rely on it as much. It's kind of a supplementary. Yeah, as you said, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a supplementary thing. Like the fungus is like, yeah, cool, you can spread my spores and they get a tasty <laughs> treat. But, you know, I don't think it's going to, you know, it's not going to affect them too much if, if fungi disappeared. But for our little northern betong, crucial to their survival, and the truffle fungi depend on the northern betong for its survival. So there's this little beautiful relationship going on there.
0: Cool. I guess uh, probably for anybody like my mum that uh, didn't, didn't actually know what a northern betong was, could you give us a bit of a description of, of what they are? Sure.
2: Yeah, anyone out there is going, what the hell is a betong? <laughs> give, yeah, give them a Google. They're pretty cute, northern betong. So they're only about a kilogram. So they're really small little kangaroo. So a lot of people, when they see them, they think, oh, it's a big rat, it's a bandicoot, um, potteroo, and they actually are in the, the potteroo kind of group of macropods. So um, they're a potteroid, if I say that right, pot-a-rooid. Um So they are a rat kangaroo. The northern Betong is very specific to the wet tropics region of uh, North Queensland uh, there are other betongs around the country. I mentioned the Rufus betong. There's also a burrowing betong that's very specifically uh, in arid in the arid zone. I've got to meet them up close and personal, which was fun. But the Northern betong is the only tropical betong. It's a lot smaller, so yeah, that one kilo mark. It's got a beautiful grey, fluffy coat, a really cute black nose, and a really extremely long tail. With a black tuft of hair on the end. And um, they've actually been uh, videoed or, or filmed, and people have seen with their own eyes these betong actually carry grass in their prehensile tail. So um, it's pretty unusual for macropods to have a prehensile tail. But um, the betong has been shown to carry its little nesting material. You know, it'll go and collect some grass, shove it into its little tail, curl it around really tight and then hop off and go and build his little nest. So, yeah, they're absolutely adorable. Um, yeah, so that's a northern bettong.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, they're cool. <laughs> I was going to say I definitely remember the, the, the tuft on the tail from uh, – because the the reason I had your contact information was I, I – I um. Was help. I think I, back in the day, I helped go through some of the, the camera trap footage you had of the Northern Battalions.
2: <laughs> yes, I totally remember you. Well, yeah. that you know, talking on email, yeah. So it's nice to put a face to you know that name,
0: definitely. I um uh, but no, that was so did, did, uh, was that a part of your master's project as well? The, the camera trap footage,
2: ah, so that came well after. So, yeah, after I finished my master's, I kind of um you know, wrote my thesis and I was working with Sandra Abel-Davis, who's now, um, she's the chair of the Northern Betong recovery team. She's a mycologist, which means she studies fungi. Um, she is, It's totally her fault that I love fungi so much, by the way. So I'll give it a shout out to Sandra. Um, I then went and I volunteered on a lot of different projects with um, AWC. They were looking for Northern Betongs actually in Mount Lewis National Park, um, just north of um, Mariba, which is an area where they, they used to be, to be known from.
0: Hey, it's Ask Art again, and AWC. What's that, game?
1: Australian Wildlife Conservancy. It's just one of the big private conservation NGOs in Australia. Where's that <laughs> North National Park? Ah,
0: all right. So that one is northwest of Cairns. So it's just a little bit up and then to the west.
1: Right. And it's then, still on that northeast coast of Queensland.
0: Yep, yeah, still on the northeast mm. coast of Queensland. So not super inland, just a little bit north and a little bit west. And then she's about to say Mariba, and that's also very close to Cairns. It's
1: just a little bit to the west of Cairns. Right yeah. Drop down yeah. a bit and you're Mariba. Exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. Let's get back into it.
2: And we did a lot of um we did a lot of looking for betongs and never found them. You know, we did a lot of looking and you would be familiar, Alex, when you went through those camera photos that you didn't see any northern bettons because (laughs) we just, we literally couldn't find them, you know, outside of the kind of standard areas that we knew that they were. So when I did all this volunteering, one of the projects I was working on was with WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And uh, they had one staff member who was up in the tropics and she was basically... Looking to see where these betongs were outside of the known areas, and WWF uh, was running a five-year project on uh, the northern betong, specifically looking at the um, you know the effects of fire, looking at their distribution, looking at their threats. So yeah, basically was volunteering on this project, came back home. I was working for a wildlife ecologist. Um, and a consultancy, private consultancy, down here on the north coast of New South Wales, and I was specifically working with koalas. I don't know what it is with me and, like, fluffy, cute things. It wasn't <laughs> deliberate. <laughs> it just happened. Um, and then, yeah, I got the call basically that Jess was, was going over to work for Australian Wildlife Conservancy and would I like her position at WWF, which, you know, as you can imagine, was just, like, the hugest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, when you've been working with wildlife in Australia and you know working for such a well-known organisation with potential to do a lot of good. So I immediately snapped it up, said sorry to my boss um, down here working with koalas and moved back up to the tropics. So um, it was only a couple of years between my stints in the tropics, but I was very stoked to get back there in 2017, I think that was, yes. And then yeah. So what
1: drew you back to the northern betongs then? Like
2: Yeah, I don't know. They just kept calling me back. <laughs> yeah, I just said yes. And I basically dropped everything that I was doing and started. I moved to Mariba in final Queensland, if anyone knows um, knows Mariba. Mariba has the last stronghold uh, for the northern betong in the world. So, uh, yeah, amazing. There is a population, um, that is the stronghold population of the Northern Betong. So basically I was tasked with finding more populations of the Northern Betong. We know that, you know, in the 1800s they used to live all the way down the Great Dividing Range to about Rockhampton, so central Queensland. Uh, We know they're, you know, truffle fungi specialists. We know truffle fungi have suffered greatly with changes to the fire regime, with changes to the landscape on a a kind of moisture level, so with climate change and global warming. um, We know that the wet tropics has lost a lot of wet sclerophyll habitat due to rainforest encroachment, and that's where the, the northern betong can only survive... On the western side of the Great Dividing Range, in the rain shadow, between in some areas, it's only five to 10 kilometres wide.
1: Hey, it's us again jumping in. Great Dividing Range, where's that? Great Dividing Range, well, that basically runs along
0: the entire east coast of Australia. So, Australia's the flattest continent, and this is our excuse for a giant mountain range. It is super beautiful, (laughs) got to say. It is very pretty, uh, amazing hiking, but it basically runs along the entire east coast of Australia and it's just a big mountain range. And when she says rain shadows here, what a rain shadow is, is where basically winds coming up usually from the ocean or the coast, they'll drive clouds up over the mountains. And as the clouds come up over the mountains, they'll drop all the rain on one side of the mountain. And then when they pass over the top, there's usually no rain left. And so that gets left and becomes a lot drier. So one side of the mountain, you've got all this lush sort of forest. Then on the other side, you've usually got
1: drier ecosystems. It's really cool. And when she says the lush, wet sclerophyll that's I'm going to just read off the Queensland government's website again for their definition Hell of yeah. it. <laughs> uh, it's a very tall eucalypt trees. Uh, which form an upper canopy layer. The trunks of those trees tend to be straighter than those of the eucalypts and their leafy parts are concentrated in the top dead of their tree. Uh, and the understory can contain shrubs and small trees, often with some rainforest species in there. So it's like between bush and rainforest. Yeah. Perfect, perfect description. Oh, Look thank that. you. Knowledge dropped on you. <laughs> <laughs> From the sky.
2: <laughs> so they live in this tiny little, it's literally a Goldilocks zone of wet sclerophyll habitat. Um, they don't live in the rainforest. They don't live, you know, out far west. They can only live in this little Goldilocks zone of five to ten kilometres wide in the wet tropics bioregion and that happens to be um, in the lamb range near Mariba. So I've moved straight back up there just to continue working with them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so is this the, is that the, The I guess, one of the biggest threats they're currently facing is that they're so spe- specific to, um, or they have such a specific habitat type?
2: Yeah, there was, there were, we found there to be a lot going on um, in terms of their threats. Um, their threats are quite um, complicated and they involve many, many factors including, you know, the climate change factor, um, feral and introduced predator species cats. Luckily, there there aren't too many foxes in the wet tropics, or I was unable to find any on our cameras. But coincidentally or not, the northern betong population starts around uh, the location where fox numbers start dwindling (laughs) because it gets too hot for foxes. From about Townsville north, too hot for foxes. That's where it gets almost too hot for koalas as well. It just gets too damn hot, even for humans. It's just too hot. <laughs> um, but yeah, coincidentally, that fox line is where the northern betong line, you know, then starts. So, pigs as well. So feral pigs, they are competing for food with the northern betong, and we did consider, and, and this this has not been um, tested, uh, we did consider whether feral pigs might be predating on small bettongs as well um, because they do just nest really you know they nest in these little grassy mounds and they sleep during the day and so they're quite easy for predators or you know really aggressive kind of invasive species and pigs kind of eat everything everything that they can get their mouth around so um, it wouldn't surprise me if they were Kind of directly predating on, and they were also competing for food. Also, land clearing. All of the northern betongs that we are kind of keeping tabs on now are within the wet tropics management region. So, they're actually within national parks. There are a couple that come down into private property, a few cattle stations, um, but most of the northern betongs are within national parks. So, that's not cleared. Uh, They've been um, selectively logged for for a fair while. They've been selectively logged, but they haven't been cleared. Cattle is one of the other major threats. Uh, Anything that can, you know, alter habitat. So the cattle with their hooves are damaging and eroding uh, the the forest and um, damaging trees, and they're also eating the grass that the betongs rely on for their nesting material and, you know, to hide from predators. So betongs are very small and vulnerable to particularly cat predation because of their size, and so they really need ample grass cover to be able to hide. Um, yeah, and if the cattle are eating all the grass, um, so yeah, they're the main. Did I go through all the threats? Yeah, that it's a lot of threats, ranging from fire, climate change, predators. It, it's huge. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on there.
0: Yeah. I- <laughs> I definitely remember seeing a couple of photos of cats and the camera trap stuff. Yeah,
2: and cats are really hard to actually capture on camera and cats are really difficult to trap. Um, if you're doing some sort of feral species management, they've got to do all sorts of different stuff for cats because cats don't really touch the baits, they're really fussy, um, they don't like being seen on camera, they can hear the cameras you know, clicking and they kind of will walk around it. Huh. Yeah, they're, they're onto it. Um, so it's very hard. So if you did see a cat on the camera, well done, because there weren't many of them, but we did find them, um, in a lot of the areas that we searched.
1: And I know the numbers have been updated a little bit recently, uh, with some surveying that started around the same time that you started in the Northern Betong project in that 2017 time. But at that point when you joined and you were trying to find other populations of them, did you know roughly how many there were in the spots where you'd found them before?
2: Yeah, so when I started uh, with the Northern Betong Project, we kind of knew of four populations of the Northern Betong and their numbers were supposed to be around maybe 2,500, a couple of thousand. They were endangered, so um, they, they are and they, they were then um, endangered. There was a recovery plan that kind of ended up going nowhere and yeah, it was great. WWF, you know, picked up the species and really went, we need to save this thing now because it's literally not going to be here in 10 years. So what we were tasked with was finding betongs in these these four known populations that they were in. And, well, yeah, the good news kind of ended there because there had been extensive surveys done over the last, like, 15, 20 years. But since then there's been quite a bit of a gap. And so we went back into those areas and we went, all right, are they still here? No, they're not at Mount Windsor anymore. No, they're not in the Cohen Range anymore, which is just uh, west of Townsville. But we did find them in Lamb Range and we found that that population uh, is a relatively stable rate. So we think there's about 1,000 individuals between Lake Tinaroo and Davies Creek all in National Park uh, and all in the wet tropics region. Uh, so that land is protected, which is really good news. Um, they're in there and they're stable. And then we found a very extremely small population of them on the carbine Tableland. So they used to be all through the upper Dame tree um, up to Mount Windsor
0: Hey, we're cutting back again and again with yet another location. <laughs> so the Upper Daintree,
1: Gabe. <laughs> the Upper Daintree is just even more north of Cairns. We just keep traveling up the coastline at the moment. It's getting, it's like, I don't know, a few hours north of Cairns, uh, the Upper Daintree National Park, um, which is just getting right up into the top end now, I guess.
0: Yeah, this is where you're really starting to get into that tropical stuff. It's pretty nice. <laughs> but we'll get back into it.
2: <laughs> Very... Amazing country. You know, it's if you look on a map, it's literally Upper Daintree National Park, goes up to, you know, 1600, 1400 meters altitude. Amazing country that you really can't get into. Um, we got helicopter dropped in there. <laughs> That's another story. Um, <laughs> so it, it's amazing country and no one can get there. And we wanted to see if the Betongs were still there and we found the tiniest little population. Was about 50 kilometres squared, and there's anywhere between about 50 and 80 animals only in that little population, and it's completely disconnected. And so we put out, I think it was about 560 wildlife cameras over five years. We collected 8 million photographs of. Um, you know, the the wildlife um, cameras took 8 million photos. I then narrowed it down to about 500,000 photos that were actually of of animals, of which Alex, you helped me get through. Thank you. Um, I I had some really great volunteers on the task because looking through 8 million photos um, is just actually impossible. Um, So, yeah, after, you know, that many cameras out, so many trap nights Going to go into these locations. We went to 11 different locations all over the wet tropics. We could only find the northern betong existing in two locations. So when we kind of did all the figures, you know, I wrote the big report for WWF, we, uh, we found that the northern betong had declined by 70% in the last, you know, 15 years of so three betong generations, which was major, major,
0: that's a, a brutal figure. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was brutal.
0: I've, uh, well, I usually ask this question, um, in each episode. and I feel like now's probably a good time to follow up with it. Is, <laughs> <'cause>, uh, <laughs> I guess with such a st- steep decline, um, do you think that Northern Batongs will be around for like the next, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 years? Do you reckon they'll still be here?
2: Well, I do want to give you good news. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give you good news. I also want to, yeah, want to give you my honest opinion as well. The good news is that there's, there's interest, there's money, there's funding, there's, there's momentum happening for the Northern Betong now. So, you know, we got a stack of media, um, you know, at the, at the cessation of this uh, project. Uh, there's so many groups um, working on this animal that I would hope that we can get some somewhere. And I want to give you good news and it's just like there's just going to be no good news for the Northern Betong if we don't do something immediately and swiftly and, you know, chuck all the resources that we've got with all these organisations that are working together To, and you know, I don't work for WWF anymore, but I am on the Northern Betong recovery team. And there's such a great group of people who are all really, really passionate about this. And I think without that group of people and all the collaborations and everybody working together, um, the Northern Betong would not stand a chance. Um, And you know, thinking about the Northern Betong only being in a captive facility in the future, and that does make me really sad. Um, but the plan is to breed them up enough in captivity that they can then be reintroduced into the wild, repopulate um, particularly those four areas that we know that they were in really recently, but without firstly looking at those areas and go, what's changed in the last 20 years? Another weird thing that I found actually was there's a lot of rufous betongs or the other betong species, There's a lot of rufous betong in areas where the northern betong used to be. Hmm. So I would love to see more research into, you know, is it chicken or the egg? Because they normally they don't live together. So did the northern betongs disappear first and then the rufous betongs have gone, oh, there's available habitat here. I'm just gonna move a bit closer to the ranges. Or did they kick the northern betongs out? They're a lot bigger. They've got a, a wider ranging diet. Um, they kind of browsers and they they can get a lot get away with eating a lot of different diversity of food. And they're bigger and you know more aggressive. The northern betong would have just been like, oh, okay, I'll just leave. So that was a, a side effect of our a finding of our study that just you know there were a lot more questions than were <laughs> actually answered. So moving forward, that's one of the things that I, I want to know about. What's the relationship between the Northern and the Rufus Betong? Can they get along? You know, if we put them back into these areas, are the Rufus Betongs going to going to bully them out again? Or is that, you know, can they live side by side? Lots of questions.
1: <laughs> I want to quickly go back because you mentioned there was a helicopter story and I think we should get it out of you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a great helicopter story. This is, yeah, it was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life or been involved in. So, um, you know, we're in the upper Daintree, um, the upper, upper reaches of the, the Daintree River up at 4, 1400 meters altitude, I think it was, looking for these betongs. And the only way to get there is by helicopter unless you want to hike in for two to three days. Uh, with you know 100 cameras all your food for the week so we got helicoptered in there basically we got this tiny little helicopter that fit like two people in it and this um (laughs) this like this cowboy helicopter pilot from Mariba, and it's just raining and we're standing there going oh this is bad you know we're waiting for the helicopter to come we're at Mount Windsor Going, so, oh, this just looks bad. And he's like, I've got 10 minutes, like be there. And we're like, oh, okay. And so, um, we just had to go one by one with all our bags in this little helicopter. And he quickly shuttled about 10, 12 different staff. He quickly shuttled us all over to this spot. It took, um, it was a five minute helicopter ride, right? But it was, the scariest experience of my life because this helicopter <laughs> was so tiny. It had no, no windows or doors. It was raining and it was windy as and the helicopter pilot is holding on the, to the stick and it's just like shaking everywhere. And I was like, I'm going to actually die. I'm going to actually die. I was just freaking out. And then, you know, the landing was so hectic. He dropped us on a rock in the middle of the Upper Daintree River. There was just a rock. <laughs> And then it was river and it was, you know, up in the upper reaches, the river's only um, 10 metres wide, you know, 10, 15 metres wide. So he puts one corner of the helicopter down on this rock and he's like, get out, get out, get out. And he couldn't even (laughs) park there. He just, and you just had to like throw all your things out of the the helicopter, almost like army roll out of the helicopter. And then he quickly took (laughs) off again to go get the next person. I'm just like, holy shit. (laughs) So it was extremely scary. Um, On another trip that my colleagues were on, he actually um, winched in all their gear and they kind of were standing on this same rock and watching him winch all the gear down. And there was like really expensive equipment and laptops and everyone's gear. Um, Turns out there was a lot of whiskey in people's luggage and, you know, there were milk bottles and all this other random stuff and everybody watched this guy, something malfunctioned on the helicopter and the winch snapped and they all just stood there watching all their gear and expensive equipment smash onto this rock in the middle of the river and all the whiskey and the milk and the computers and the cameras, you know, were all in there together. Um, so I'm really glad I wasn't on that trip and had to, like, deal with the consequences of that, but my colleagues did. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was great, um, scary helicopter times up in the, in the Upper Dane Tree and I'm glad I survived it to be able to tell the tale.
0: Yeah, fire
2: <laughs> Oh, And then, you know, spent a week spent a week there, put out 100 cameras, didn't find a single betong, and then the old cowboy helicopter man came and picked us up again a week later. <laughs> So you know, <laughs> no. it was definitely worth it to go in there. You know, we found there were no betongs, so zero. You know, a zero result is still a result. It was good to know they're not there. Um, but man, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: Never <is> again. Wild. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, uh, I was going to say, might follow that up with our our
1: audience questions now. Sounds <laughs> like a good point to end on. <laughs> Sure. Oh, hit me! Let's do it. We'll start with one on um, that's sort of based on what you we mentioned earlier about the the feral pigs and how they can eat some of the same truffles that their betongs go after. Cassie asked well, she asked two questions. The first one was, are they are they cuddly? But the second question was, do the betongs ever have to compete with people who go out truffle hunting? I'm assuming the the betongs cuddly, not the pigs. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah so um as part of the project we got to catch so we got to capture a lot of of northern betongs in cage traps and I did get to cuddle them while they were being um you know we were kind of trying to get some information about them we were measuring their little feet and measuring their little face and we put a microchip under their skin so that we could then track them and find them later on um and we did get to have a little cuddle and they don't they really don't like it very much, um, but they're very <laughs> soft and cuddly and you definitely should not cuddle wild animals unless you're doing research projects on them. Um, <laughs> but if you, I, and I have met um, captive, um, captive bettongs in the zoo and um, with a wildlife carer friend of mine who actually looks after orphaned and injured northern bettongs they are very cuddly, but they're also extremely bouncy. They've got these deadly back legs, um, like a lot of the kangaroos do. But they can really bounce, and they can bounce a couple of metres up into the air. <laughs> yep. So you need to be careful around the leg region, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so cool.
2: But they're very, very fluffy, and they're very adorable. So, yeah, it would be good to have a pet one, but they're extremely bouncy. Mm. Um the next question was truffle hunters. The, the truffles in Australia are not tasty. They're not sought after by people. Um, so if you want to try and eat a, an Australian truffle, go for it. Actually, I shouldn't encourage people to eat wild mushrooms because that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, most of them would be fine. I'm sure a lot of them were consumed by the traditional peoples and they you know have a certain smell to them so it might be a bit of an acquired taste but there's no commercial industry for our australian truffles here so there is no competition whatsoever from um, truffle hunters in australia which is amazing
0: what's well, uh perfect to follow up with peter's question then have you ever tried the truffles that they eat
2: yeah they taste like shit <laughs> In saying that though, I didn't get to sample all of them. In one, um, in one study, uh, my colleague, Susan Nusky, she found that uh, betongs were eating 135 different species Whoa. of truffle fungi. Damn. Just in this one area, Davies Creek. So, um, yeah, haven't got to sample the whole range. So <laughs> <laughs> there's more to be discovered there.
0: Did you try one and you're just like, no, nope, I'm done?
2: Yeah, this tastes like dirt.
0: oh goodness but I do like
2: truffles and we did have the baits that we made up for them to catch them in the cage traps was truffle oil (laughs) peanut butter honey vanilla oats and sardines wow yeah and you know if some of the ecologists got a bit peckish at four o'clock in the morning (laughs) and we were doing some trapping it was definitely consumed by a few people Um, because the sardines and the truffle oil together, I I don't think that'll, it's really going to be a thing.
1: Yeah, maybe not.
2: (laughs) So gross. Uh,
1: The next one comes from Francisco, um, which is, are any of the truffles they eat hallucinogenic? And if so, do any of them?
2: (laughs) I'm loving the theme that these. there's a lot of like, can I eat the mushroom? You know, everyone wants to eat them. Um, I really wouldn't recommend it. Um, it is unknown whether they're hallucinogenic. I doubt it very much because that would have no real benefit for the mammal that's consuming it. I've never found uh, a high betong out there, um, or not that I can recognise with my eye. So, <laughs> um, no, it's not, it's not known, but I doubt it. Um, yeah, a lot of the really hallucinogenic ones, are the epigeous fungi, so the, the mushrooms that actually are on the, the surface that um, can actually be seen by mammals and people because they would go and pick them and then they would spread the spores. So, yeah, it's a clever little technique, the mushroom.
0: Well, we're at that time of the episode again where it's usually question time with Sue bees But unfortunately, this is the first time Mum didn't have a question to ask because... She didn't pull through. She didn't pull through. But to be fair, that's definitely on me because I literally asked her like two minutes before the interview. So I kind of, kind of <laughs> messed up on that one. But but picking up a slack, more my... Actually, more my slack. Dad came through with a friggin' fantastic question <laughs> and he's carrying the team. <laughs> so instead of question times with Sue B today, we have... Question time with Andy Bez. <laughs> Love it. I am. Um, this next question comes from my dad. Oh, I Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's a, it's a bit less sort of truffle focused. <laughs> um, Finally, good. You uh, <laughs> wanted to know if uh, do, do do we know why um, the the Rufus batong seems to be doing faring a bit better than the the Northern batongs.
2: Oh, he's in the know, your dad. (laughs) He's in the know. Um, Yeah, I think, as I said, they're they're bigger, they're more robust. They're not in that size range that can be eaten by cats particularly. They still could be um, preyed on by foxes. They have a much wider-ranging diet. They're seemingly just more adaptable. Um, So, you know, if you've got one really... Really specific set of things that you eat, and you know your cousins are like, yeah, I'll eat whatever. With climate change, particularly, and all the changes that have happened in the landscape, the ecosystem is going to favour the one that's more adaptable. And you know, I talk about that a lot when talking about you know how do we kind of overcome eco anxiety and, and the climate crisis, and you know, as humans, and the answer in that as well is to be really adaptable and really resilient. So for the Rufus Betong, he's done a really good job of of making himself more suitable for this future climate that we're going to be faced with. So um, yeah, the Rufus Betong is going to be doing a lot, lot better than other really specified betongs, like the burrowing betong and the, the tropical northern betong.
0: That's uh actually, I was gonna say a perfect follow-up with our last question from Jim. And he wanted to know uh, if there's something that simply everyone can do to help with their conservation.
2: Yeah, so the Northern Betong, because it is, you know, in such seemingly such a far away place, it's only found in the wet tropics. It's the only place in the whole world that it exists in and it only lives in these two tiny populations. There's now less than a 1,000 left. The biggest thing that you can do is support projects that are supporting the Northern Betong. So my recommendation would be to, you know, do a little Google of who is helping the Northern Betong. There's WWF, there's Australian Wildlife Conservancy, Terrain NRM, there's Aboriginal groups, research institutions and the Northern Betong recovery team working on this issue. And we really need funding to fund these projects to, you know, capture the wild animals and bring them into captivity just to immediately save them then doing habitat restoration, keeping cattle out of the national parks, doing more research about the effects of cats, pigs, you know, dingoes. How are all these animals um, interacting together in this system? We need more research. Unfortunately, a lot of our funding is political. It comes from, from state government. It comes from other groups, uh, which are state government funded so lobbying for habitat protection in the wet tropics, lobbying for Northern betong Research, contributing to as much um, research as possible, whether that's financial, whether you can you know, just share um, what's going on, share posts from AWC, look for updates about this captive breeding program, share, 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 tell everybody you know, tell your mum and dad, tell people if you know anyone living in the wet tropics in North Queensland and in Cairns. Maybe you can go and visit them and you can go out to Davies Creek National Park and the Dindin Forest and you can go spotlighting at night and you can see them for yourself and see how cute they are Um, (laughs) because, yeah, cute things um, unfortunately get a lot more funding. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many ways that you can help the Northern Betong um, from a distance. So, yeah, highly encourage any or all of those things if you want to help the Northern Betong.
0: And uh, just just to follow up, is there one particular message that you'd really want people to hear about Northern Batongs or just conservation in general?
2: Yeah, just get engaged. I know it's really hard at the moment to focus in on things. There's so much going on um, with the pandemic. Um, there's been zero news on on conservation. You know, it's really hard. For conservationists to get messages out there when all we hear all day long is pandemic 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 um, so keep keep engaging with issues around wildlife conservation in australia we still have so much land clearing occurring every single day in this country particularly in queensland uh, we still have so many feral species out there keep up to date with the latest news support your local organizations who are helping to support ecosystems out there and just, yeah, just stay informed. That's my biggest tip to people. Just um, if you're passionate about something, really take that on as your little project. We can't, we can't all do everything. So, you know, if there's a little handful of people that are really passionate about Northern Bertons, you know, that is amazing and that will really help them um, into the future. So anything is good.
0: Awesome. Well, on that note, I might pause the recording, but before I do, I just wanted to say, we both want to say a huge thank you for coming on. It's It's been fantastic. <laughs>
2: Thanks for having me, guys. It was so nice to
1: meet you. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> good to finally meet. <laughs> Episode 17 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagra and Goringo people. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
0: All our thanks to Caitlin for bickering with us about batons. It was amazing. She's on Instagram with the handle Wild Search, where you can follow along with her journey. And she also posts about Life Wilds, the business she runs connecting people back with nature. So go have a scroll if you're interested and you need a bit of a digital detox.
1: And if you can, we'd love if you can give life on the brink of rating, a review, a follow, whatever you can find, a button to do on your podcast app of choice.
0: As always, we're on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at Alife on the Brink so you can keep track of us between episodes.
1: And if you've just found us for Season 2, all of Season 1 and a couple of bonus episodes of Life on the Brink are already out wherever you're hearing this or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com Massive thanks to Angus Buzina for running
0: our website. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs> season you Season
2: 2! I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs>